Welcome to the Alternative Data Podcast. In this episode, I speak to Philip A.B. of RepRisk. Switzerland-based RepRisk is one of the founding fathers of the trending ESG sector, since it has been compiling environmental and social data since the mid-2000s and kept up to date with the latest machine learning techniques used for generating it. In our conversation, Philip and I discuss his unusual background as a debut novelist, how ESG came to be quite so hot right now, and frontiers for the sector, notably in the Chinese market. In this episode, I'm joined by Philip A.B. of RepRisk. Um, Philip, thank you very much for joining. Thank you very much for having me. Philip, let's begin. It's not a. It's not often. It's not every day that I get a, a published author on this uh, on this podcast. So let's begin, if we can. Tell me about the book. How how did the book come about? You've you've written a book. Indeed. I mean, in fact, it's a while ago, and this was inspired by the work I did as a consultant back in the days when I learned a lot about business conduct within different client companies. And of course, the book doesn't contain any confidential matters, but, but what really was very much in my mind was, was a question what an individual business person can do in terms of, of business ethics. So, so let's say that you see that something is going on within the company or with a supplier or with a partner that is not up to, um, let's say, your own standards or, or laws or international standards. Are there any, any things you can change in, in terms of the, of the course of, of how business is conducted? So this is what originally motivated me. And at the same time, I had a lot of clients in the pharmaceutical industry, which I think in the US English is called the ethical drugs business, at least when it comes to prescription drugs. And there are a lot of interesting ethical questions when it comes to um, uh, prescription drugs. And now, of course, in the time of COVID-19, this is even more urgent. Think of all these vaccination programs. So you can do a lot of good stuff in the pharmaceutical industry, but at the same time, it's, it's highly, highly profitable. And this can pose a dilemma for some managers and business people to deal with these both aspects that you can have a very positive impact, but at the same time, you can make a lot of money and, and uh, you can even make more money if you potentially cut corners. This was a, a fiction book, wasn't it? It was, but it's, it was really inspired, as I said, about the practices uh, mm. back 20 years ago in the year 2000. This was a time when we just had this uh, a bubble that was uh, was also bursting that was called the dot-com bubble. But yeah. the pharmaceutical industry still did uh, quite well. Um, and it was quite a different time in, 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 in terms of business ethics. You know, the um, I don't know if you know, it, it brings to mind, I haven't actually read it, but there's a Graham Greene book called The Constant Gardener. Is it Graham Greene? Indeed, uh, indeed. Interesting book too. It's, it's uh, of course, uh, much better written than my book. Not but I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure about the uh, underlying business logic. Um, I mean, we could talk about that if you want to, but basically it was all about the African pharmaceutical market. And, 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 and I think no one would, at, at that time at least, basically um, focus on that market because it was less than 1% of, of the overall revenues in the pharmaceutical industry. But the USA at the time actually was 50% of the overall market. So I think it's fair to say that most of the questionable behavior rather took place in the USA. Interesting, interesting. Okay, cool. Well, enjoyed that little diversion. Uh, but let us talk about um, alternative data and let's talk about, about well, can you perhaps um, tell me the story about how you came to RepRisk, how RepRisk came about, um, you know, how you got involved in alternative data? Absolutely. I mean, it's simply a matter of luck because at that time in 2006, um, I knew a company that was just asked by a, a big American investment bank whether they could help them with one specific aspect of um, KYC, which is a know your client. So basically, this is about vetting or testing clients before you onboard them with respect to environmental and social issues. Nowadays, you call that ESG issues or ESG risks, ESG standing for environmental social governance, but at that time it was just called environmental and social issues and you were thinking of um, 
things like um, cutting down the rainforest or having labor issues, etc. And um, for, for the bank, they, they, they had the problem that they should they must protect the reputation when, when it comes to dealing with clients. It could be an IPO, which means that you that you that you bring a company to the to the stock markets that you, that you list them. Uh, could be that um, uh, you you give them a loan and then it turns out that uh, this is this company is fraudulent, etc. Um, so they had this need and and um, this is it. sorry, Philip. This is interesting. Sure, it's, it's interesting to still talk about the kind of the origins of ESG because it's so hot right now. It's but so hot indeed, isn't it? But um, uh, so you're saying originally it was kind of environmental and social, so ES, um, and it was and it was all about the environment, was it? Like so, but. What was the so there was a basically a downside risk, but the but the um, but the industry hadn't caught up in order to give it a buzzword and actually build infrastructure around trying to trying to protect the investor from it. So that was that was beginning to happen in two thousand six. Are you saying? Well, for us, the journey started in two thousand six, but you could actually argue to a certain extent that the real starting point was 2003 and this is when actually some banks and non-government organizations ngos agreed on some principles that are called equator principles that still exist today and the equator principles basically established some some minimum standards uh, for banks when it was about uh, financing not about investments from investors but financing as i said before like this uh, advisory or this uh, um, credit operations trade finance etc so minimum standards when, when when banks dealt with clients with respect and mental and and, and and social issues so i think 2003 was a real starting point in a way but as you say there no one has uh, coined the term esg yet yeah, was this happening in Europe particularly? Obviously, you're in Switzerland, so you're not you're not within the the EU, although you're kind of as good as. Was it was it a Swiss thing? No, not at all. I, I actually don't know when, when, where, where these equator principles got signed. Actually, I think they, they got actually signed in, 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 in London because at some point they were supposed to be the, the Greenwich principles and, 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 um, and, and then they, just, they changed the name to, to, to equator principles to basically uh, uh, stress the fact that most about, about that was about the southern hemisphere and, 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 and emerging markets. So I think it's actually they, 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 they got signed in, in, in London back in 2003 but it was a very international um uh, uh movement as i said a couple of ngos involved um but but also i don't know in the beginning maybe uh, 15 banks or so um but it wasn't a european thing no okay okay so um as you were saying so in 2006 it was just it came to you this kind of that this was a this was a kind of growing and important subject and how did you how did you get involved well actually I heard about that, that, that basically uh, a little company is, is, is going to build a database for a, for a, for a big American investment bank, um, actually a European investment bank operating in, in, in America, mainly in New York. And, and um, this really triggered my interest because originally I'm a climatologist by training, but, but then out of necessity uh, and in the 90s, I first started to... For, a consulting company and later for a pharmaceutical company. And then in 2006, I had the opportunity to go back to my roots and basically combine my business interests that I newly acquired with, with my originally genuine interest, in, in, especially in environmental questions. So basically, I was asked whether I'm interested to join this company as a partner and then basically commercialize this, this uh, ESG risk platform. Uh, so this is, this is how it started. And how did and how did that look? So what kind of so you were worried about you know oil spills and you know all the all the rest. And so what did your what did your role look like? Exactly, because um, uh, it was all about this due diligence, as I said. For example, the application of this KYC and uh, uh, your client. And you, when you make such a due diligence, I mean, of course, as a bank, you 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 have all the disclosures, not public ones, but 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 the, but the documents, etc., that are provided by your client or by your prospect. Um, but this is very often not enough. I mean, think of, um, as I said before, cutting down the rainforest, uh, think of having a child label. That's not something that a, a company actually uh, publishes about or even discloses in, in relationship to the bank. So we need a sort of a, a more objective or, or let's say outside-in 
you. And, and this is when we had the idea that you should just collect all the information which is available from, from, from outside of, 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 of companies. And this is when we started to, to collect all these documents from non-government organizations, from, from, from governmental agencies, from, 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 from media companies, etc. Okay. And so who was, who were you, and then you were selling that to someone where you were selling that to the investment market? No, not yet. In the beginning, and we had this one pilot uh, client in, 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 in the US. Um, and and uh, later on, we, we, we added on many other banks because they all had the same need to, to better understand the, the ESG risks and reputation risks associated with client relationships. And then okay. just in, in 2008, again, by, by, by good luck, uh, we got to know, actually one of our analysts uh, got to know uh, someone from the uh, Ministry of Finance of Norway. Um, and at the time, um, as is well known, they, they, Norway run this oil fund, which is now this um, uh, government um, pension fund of Norway, which is nothing else than a sovereign wealth fund. And they yeah. said, hey, uh, we have a similar problem. We, we, we invest in so many thousands of companies and, 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 and we being Norwegians, we have, we have a pretty clear understanding of what we find um, ethically acceptable and not acceptable. For example, we don't like child labor, we don't have human rights violations, we don't have large-scale destruction and, and, and adverse impact on biodiversity. So can you help us to identify and assess companies in our portfolio that actually are violating these rules? And this is when we actually uh, moved into the investment market. Interesting. So is that more of a kind of um, detective story a little bit that they gave you a list of companies and then you had to, you know, track each company and see how they were doing? Or were you tr still were you trying to kind of collect data on the entire market, whether or not um, I've, what's, what's it called? The, the Norwegian fund, I've forgotten. Uh, the government Nord pension fund. Nordis. Nordis. Uh, yeah, the Norges Bank is actually the, the, the one running it. Yeah, that's the, yeah. that's the central bank of Norway. There yeah. we go. And so, um, and so, were you were you still were you collecting all the data, or were you focusing on on Norges's um, uh, portfolio specifically? Actually, it's a second case. So it's it's not detective work that that we that we just looked at the individual companies. That's something that you call enhanced due diligence. Our job mm -hmm. was basically to screen everything, um, and and irrespective of whether the. Uh, Norwegian Central Bank or any other of our clients actually invested in a particular company. So what we developed then, and this goes back to the original idea in 2006, was, 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 was a system that we can identify, first of all, the ESG issue. I mean, at that time, environmental and social issue, but then we already in 2007, we added the G part, which can be about fraud, corruption, bribery, etc., compensation issues. So basically, we are good in identifying the ESG issue. And then in the second step, we, we see is this somehow related to, to a portfolio company, for example, for the Norwegian Pension Fund, or is it related to a prospect, a company of one of our banking clients? So it's actually first identifying the issue and then see is there an association with a, with a legal entity, which can be a, a company, but also a project like a mine or any other infra infrastructure project. Mm. And what, how did you, I mean, presumably the ESG, well, at the same time, the ESG market was turning into a thing as well. I mean, did you feel in 2006, you'd kind of, did you feel like you created a business model or did you, did, how's the competition changed? Well, in hindsight, you could say we created a business model because of this focus on, on the ESG risk part. Um, but there's a, there's a broader ESG space. And already at that time, there was a broader ESG space. I mean, this whole sustainable investing or, or social responsible investing, as it was called at the time, actually goes back uh, not only to the 90s, but even to the 70s. It depends how, how you see it. So basically, it was, it's rooted in, in, in a faith-based uh, in, in investments, for example, in, in, in the USA. Uh, there's some, I don't know, Catholic priests said, okay, we don't want to be um, invested in a company that is associated with apartheid. In, in, in South Africa, uh, or it's rooted in the 90s more in this uh, environmental movement when, when, when actually um, uh, investors or asset managers have to say, for example, in Switzerland, came up with environmental, environmental funds. So this is a broader um, uh, ESG um, uh, industry, um, but very much um, at that time, the, the focus of, of, of these funds um, was, was much more about 
company disclosures? What do companies say about themselves? Um, do they have policies um, basically against uh, human rights violations? Um, what is the uh, environmental footprint? Uh, how, how do they uh, make sure that they have an uh, efficient use of, of, of energy? So this market already existed. But what we basically focused on, on, on basically were the first to, 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 to pioneer that was really this, this um, due diligence lens and, and, and this, this focus on the ESG issues and risks part. And, and what has happened, um, and, and here again, third time lucky, over the last 14 years is, is that really the, the ESG risk is now very much the, the center of interest when, when, when it comes to ESG investments. And, and the reason for that, uh, let me correct it in, in, in terms of ESG data industry, I have to say it this way. And the reason for that is, for example, for investment management, a good portfolio manager is very well aware of the opportunity, let's say, of electric cars and why Tesla should have a high market capitalization and maybe some other more traditional manufacturers less so. This is obviously something which, which, which is about um, understanding the market, um, uh, cash flows, uh, market opportunities, etc. But the risk part about the ESGs, this is not something that, that you can actually um, um, identify and assess when you, when you talk to companies. Well, you can, but not to, only to a certain extent, or, or when you look at, at company disclosures and financial reporting. And, and, and that's why um, what is really hot now is basically to get data that basically can flag any material that's uh, also a term that actually got coined over the last five years, any material ESG issues or risks. And we were lucky that at the request of this banking client from the beginning, we focused on these ESG issues and that we also could then basically build a, a whole infrastructure around the way to identify documents, process documents, make sure that this due diligence great, which is all focused on these ESG issues. So let's talk about the development of that. So presumably in 2006, you, you've got a, like essentially a gigantic Excel <laughs> spreadsheet in terms of like numbers and figures and, you know, the, this information. And then over time, that's become more complex and your way of accessing it has become more complex. And as the, as the technology has advanced, then you've advanced with it. So how, how, has, that, how has that progressed over the years? Like was there, was there like big jumps at certain times? Well, sort of. Um, I mean, fortunately, we, we, we um, didn't do the Excel step. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you started um, a bit ahead of that. Um, um, well, uh, from the beginning, we, we, we built a proper database. Um, but, but in terms of, of uh, the whole workflow, this indeed has changed. And, 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 and we have um, pictures of, of our very first analyst in 2006 that really basically uh, took uh, a physical newsletter that we got from a, from an NGO out of a, of a cardboard box. <laughs> At the time, it were, wow. there were no many documents that, that we processed manually, and, and, and we were also already at that time joking about that, and had the cardboard box that we labeled ABC in terms of relevancy. Um, but but we, we got a lot of this information electronically um, uh, via databases, uh, for, for example, for, for, for certain published media. Um, or um, I don't know um, uh, newsletters electronically, etc. Um, so it was from the beginning, basically, that we were a, a digital company. And of course, you, you, some parts of that that we did at the time already you could, could call artificial intelligence, basically work that that was done by a computer or some filter algorithm with, with, with Boolean logic, etc. That 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 the computer did instead of a, of a human being, because already from the beginning. There has been there was so much information we could not deal with that just with a manual process, um, but this was basically just was, was digital. We, we had some uh, advanced filtering and uh, combining some 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 some, some and uh, operators with some sentiment and, and and actually that that certain terms had to be uh, within I don't know uh, 30, 30 words from each other. So basically had to be a negative sentiment related to one of the issues we were interested in. That was a child labor, underage work, or, and 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 uh, labor and English spelling and and, and US spelling, etc. So. so so, so this is this is how we started. 
I mean, no, but that sounds like, you know, it sounds not a million miles from, from where we are today in some ways. Like, was it was it state of the art at the time? At the Did time, it was, of... I think it was fair to say it, 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 was, it, was, it was state of the art. As I said, it was uh, this whole uh, sentiment analysis and, and already at that day you had certain engine that could deliver that. It was this is Boolean yeah. filtering and, and, and all about having the technology in place that you that you it was not yet big big data, but then you could could deal with a big big number of documents. So that's how it started in two thousand six. I think it was in I think I think it was in two thousand five. I'm a bit shaky on this, but I think it was in two thousand five that is it Jeffrey Hines launched his famous AI paper, which basically took the whole field of AI like forward. And then we've been living off his benefits for the last fifteen years, essentially. You know, that's that's what's that's what caused the revolution. So um so yeah, I think you were I think you were ahead of the curve in terms of in, in like having kind of baby AI in your in your processes in a way. Um but so and so then you've so then it has been a gradual progression of of beefing up these this kind of basic NLP to becoming more complex. Has it been kind of every year you put in a new patch, or have there been breakthroughs? Well, most of the work, and this sounds now really boring, uh, was really basically having the IT infrastructure, not the um, AI. Well, you could call that AI, but not the machine learning, for example, infrastructure. Really, the IT infrastructure to deal with this uh, flood of documents. So, so basically, what we did is we we, we extended the, the number of sources, um, obviously because more and more uh, got available uh, online. When we started in 2006, 14 years ago, or you could say 15 years ago almost, because we started in May 2006, um, over 60% of the documents that we were processing were from classic news sites, online news, or even in, in print news. Uh, over 60%, and, and just about 25% was, was from sources like non-government organizations, etc. Um, but then, of course, um, not necessarily that the number of um, uh, new sites basically decreased, but more and more other sources uh, got available, and also because we added more and more languages. We started from the beginning, which, which gave us another advantage with, with uh, five languages. Um, it helps being Swiss for that. Yeah, it's uh, certainly. Uh, <laughs> at least you, at least you used to uh, used to that. Um, so, so the major, the major business languages at that time in in in, in Western Europe, um, and then I think for for example the Norwegian pension fund, we had to we had to um, add uh, Russian, and, and and they really struggled to 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 find Russian analysts. So we had this completely crazy idea to go to Kyrgyzstan, which is somehow in between Russia and and, and China, to Bishkek. And, and to, to build an analyst team there because one of our um, co-workers used to work for, 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 for Doctors Without Borders and, and a new team there. So Surely, but, surely uh, Estonia would have been easier <laughs> to find someone. But you make it hard for Well, I, let's not go into this subject. I do not necessarily agree with you that. And so I don't think the listeners that live in Estonia do necessarily agree with that. Um, but... Um, Yes, so basically we start with several languages, but then we also extended that. I mean, we already started with five languages, now, now we are 20. We have now three other languages, uh, Polish, uh, Thai, and, and Turkish this year. Um, so a lot was about this infrastructure, basically, that we could, you could process all of that. And a lot of, whenever you added a language, then you had to, you had to come up with the corresponding uh, sentiment, um, um, with the corresponding uh, analysis, with the corresponding uh, Boolean filtering, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. Mm. and then, but the, so this was one thing to 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 learn to deal with these different documents, to learn to fetch them, to to to, to have a, a stable system that that uh, even when you when you when your service broke, that, that you could recover that, etc. Um, but the really inter really interesting thing basically um, happened. Years later, let's say five years ago, when we when we actually realized that that our analysts that did all this human intelligence, so at that time it was more about human intelligence than about artificial intelligence. So, so most of our cost base was about um, our highly trained analysts, and it also took us at least two years to to get them at the, to a good level. But we also realized that actually these highly trained analysts they're also doing something which is called tagging or labeling. So basically they take a document and say, I don't know, in, in Korean, and, and, and say this document is linked to, to fraud and this is, is linked to a certain country. I mean, I don't know, in Korea, for example, this example. So this is called tagging of documents. And because we have tagged 
millions of documents over the years. I mean, we put, I don't know how many years, more than 500 analysts, 600 uh, analyst years, I don't know, into this work. We had an incredible number of such documents which were tagged, and we could then actually, for the first time, apply machine learning. And machine learning basically means that instead of telling the computer, this is a sort of pattern or characteristics that you, that you have to consider to consider something related to forced labor or related to palm oil, uh, adverse impacts of palm oil. The, the computer basically founds this pattern itself. Um, and the computer is, for some tasks, much better than we are, we human beings, in identifying such, such patterns if, if you give it millions of documents so this was basically the the, the birth from us as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a data science company machine learning company and and making us a step from 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 from, from ordinary artificial intelligence to to the more advanced uh, machine learning parts so the answer was it's a wonderful it's a wonderful classic story in a way that you were just doing your day-to-day -day job and um but unbeknownst to you you were creating big data and a wonderfully um uh data that only belonged to you uh, proprietary data um and exactly. so you, had this huge, uh, you had this huge private database which you could then train a model on to be able to find analytical solutions which nobody else would be able to do because they didn't have access to the data exactly Love and it. at the same time i mean this is some people call that the uh, read the, the narrow form of artificial intelligence that you have a, a simple problem in our case you call that the classification you want to know when, when a document comes in we have on a daily basis up to half a million uh, documents coming in 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 20 SUNY 23 languages and the, the first question we have to ask ourselves is this document relevant so basically you you, you run a very simple um, classifier classifying mm. doing classification relevant irrelevant um actually nowadays we, we do it a bit more uh, sophisticated i come to that in a sec but that's basically what, what, what we started uh, five years like a, ago like a like a logistic re regression exactly a logistic regression and and everyone who understands machine learning will now laugh out aloud and says these the, these beginners and of course that's exactly how we started we started with a logistic regression and and and, and it worked very well i mean we had we had um uh, many millions of documents and we, which means uh, several 10,000 even for the, the the fully processed documents so basically we had we had several steps of processing not all documents were were fully um process in the sense that we looked at all the issues related to that um all the companies linked to that but 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 for each language we, we needed several 10,000 fully processed uh, documents to have to have good results because we had so many many documents with, with rather crude methods basically could see patterns or actually the computer could could find patterns that really helped us with with a, with, a, with a high accuracy to to find um the the relevant issues uh, related to to a corresponding document so what's this what's this model spitting out it's it's taking in each document and each one it's putting a one or a zero next to it you're saying one of it's problematic and zero of it's not problematic is it is it like that Actually, we did the other way around because we like okay. the relevant documents a bit. So basically, the the the, the first classifier, this is the one you mentioned, with logistic regression, basically uh, produced a number from zero to one, uh, or you could say from 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 zero to thousand, and and uh, everything above um, seven hundred or, or point seven, basically, we considered relevant enough so that basically a, a human person, an analyst, actually looked at it. So this was the first step yeah. we took. Filter. So, but yeah. it, so it wasn't zero one, um, because of always you have to prioritize um, documents also, also based on, on, on other reasoning. For example, if, if something is, is written in, in a very well-known um, uh, newspaper, then maybe it, it's, 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 more, it's, it's more worth the effort of, of, of a human uh, person to look at that. So there, there are also other factors that you potentially uh, consider. And then, of course, you also have the competition, so to speak, among the, the, the 20 languages. So, 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 so um, sure. you have, have to get it right. So, so Philip, the, the challenge in your field, as where we are at the moment, the challenge in your field is that there are so many documents in the world. There's so much going on that the processing of those documents so that they can get, find, uh, surface the relevant ones to then get a, an, uh, an analyst to judge it is, you know, finding those. So what you're, what you're doing here 
you haven't automated the process of, of applying an ESG score necessarily, or maybe you're going to tell me you have. But at the moment, what we're talking about is you automated the process of finding things which were worth getting a exactly. human to look at. Exactly. Yeah. And then basically, you mentioned one breakthrough in artificial intelligence. I think another one from a practical point of view, apart from, from self-driving cars, etc., was, was basically when, when Google came out with, with this incredible uh, Google translation service. Um, and and the, it, it's really incredible. I, I mean, 10 years ago, it, it was impossible to have, to have a proper uh, translation being done. Um, and nowadays, you have so many uh, applications of artificial intelligence and in this specific machine learning that you hardly notice it anymore. I mean, if you use, for example, Microsoft Teams, then you can record that. And, and when you later watch it, actually, you're surprised to see it's, it's even everything is it's even, um, how do you call that, scripted, right? So basically, you see what, what people are talking. You also see in written form. And then you can yeah. actually also automatically translate that. Um, and, and this is basically, for, for, for me, for natural language process, and so basically when it's about um, computer linguistics, a computer understanding language, that's not a term I should use, a computer doesn't understand anything, but it, it acts like it understands things. Basically, yeah. um, this is a big breakthrough that I remember, the, this, 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 this new translation uh, models from, from, from Google that worked so, so well. Um, and what we then could do, basically, as, as I said, we, we started with something primitive, so to speak, a pure statistical me method, um, um, looking at documents and saying it is relevant, irrelevant. But when it was about, for example, saying, okay, now let's go one step further and say, okay, this is now a Portuguese document or a Chinese document. And, and, and um, I don't not only want to know, is it relevant? Is it worth for us to, to touch it, that a human actually looked at it? But, but um, is it, can you already predict whether this is a document that is um, linked to any of our um, 34 issues? No, sorry, 28 issues. That's embarrassing. I should know that. 28 yeah. issues that, that we actually have as main categories. Um, and then you need more sophisticated um, uh, machine learning classifiers. And this is in stuff that is that's pretty much the same as what Google uses for, for, for the Google Translator. And now, what I love about this uh, new world is um, the software is for free. So Google kindly, um, and, and also the others, Facebook, et cetera, depending on the problem, provides you this, this software for free. Mm. Um, and we're talking, we're talking about 2015, 2016, roughly now. Yes, it is, this is when this whole thing started. Yeah, exactly. This is exactly when it started. Um, and then, at, at least what, what I'm aware of, and, and I yeah, can't redo it in study that. And the other thing, however, is that also the computer power that you need. You need a lot of computer power for the so-called training step. So basically, that when you when you when you when you when you give the computer this ten thousand or millions of documents for, for, for the computer to, to 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 figure out what the patterns are to recognize things. So this takes a lot of of, of processing power, especially when you do something. Uh, you use a method which is based on so-called neural networks. Mm. Um, and actually, I think nobody really understands that neural networks really work, but, but basically you feed these documents in a sophisticated way uh, into these um, uh, pieces of software that Google or any other provider gives you. And then basically there's an output. And in our case, the output is not as, as before binary. So basically, is it relevant or is it not relevant? But actually says, the computer sort of says, oh, I actually believe um, this is related to greenwashing or this is related to executive compensation or this is related to, um, uh, to, to um, illegal um, uh, uh, logging, stuff like that. In a basic, in a basic level, and neural nets is how um, how self-driving cars are, are based on, I, I, I believe, and and you know they're they're driving along and going, that's another car, that's a that's exactly. A it's it's, know, it's, it's a quite a di it's a different problem. It's it's not it's, it's not the, uh, this image processing, mm. um, but it's about uh, language, uh, and mm. I think on the image processing there there has been um, much have been much earlier successes. I mean, for example. Personally, the first time I used uh, a neural network was beginning of the 90s, um, when it's about, it was about image classification from satellite images. So basically, when you had a satellite um, going over the, the, the Brazilian rainforest and, and, and you as a scientist wanted to understand, okay, 
how much is cut down already from this primary rainforest uh, of, in, in, of, of the Amazon? And, and then you want to basically to, to classify this, 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 this image elements, uh, the, the, the picture elements, you call you pixels, each pixel you want to know, is that, uh, is this part of a forest, is it cut down or is it primary forest? Or maybe it's a, it's, it's a linear structure, so a line like a road. So this is yeah. stuff we did already at the beginning of the 90s. And, and, and this is this was much, much more basic, but still using neural networks, uh, just, mm. just, just a, a much smaller ones. But, but when I basically um, was running such a classification, I, I, even though we had expensive machines, basically, I, I could go home overnight in the morning. I, I, I came and, and over coffee, basically, coffee basically I looked at the results and, and I realized, oh, no, I had one semicolon too much in, in, in my piece of software. I could run everything again. So the, and nowadays, and that's what I said before, you have, you have this um, indefinite uh, access to, to, to computer power via, via cloud computing. So this is the third element you need as a successful um, data science company. The first and most valuable is the data and, and proprietary data if you're lucky. The second thing is uh, thanks to the to the big technology companies and, and universities you get the software. And the third is access to this uh, cloud computing infrastructure. Fantastic. So all the technology coincided at the right time. And so you've really, that's really supercharged you in the last, in the last five years. So what does the, what does the product look like now? Let's bring it up to, um, to, to the, to the present day. Well, one element is still basically identifying any such ESG issues associated with, with businesses. And as a businesses can be companies in, 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 in uh, I don't know, more than 185, doing business in more than 185 uh, countries or can be projects, can be, can be roads, can be factories, can, can be coal-fired power plants, um, can be uh, tailing dams of mines. Um, that's one thing. And, and, and the other thing is, and basically based on that, and that's another aspect of data science, um, is, is, is coming up with, with metrics that help our clients to, to identify companies or projects they want to identify because they pose a risk. They pose a risk maybe from a financial point of view. I mean, you, you can basically, uh, as a bank, you, you can give a, a loan to, to a company that is running a, a coal mine somewhere in Indonesia, but, but you somehow miss the fact that, that, that these coal assets are, I don't know, not, not quite next to the, to, to the sea where you basically have ships to, to transport the, the, the coal mine to, to, the, to the consumer. Um, so you need to build roads from, from the coal mine to the coast. And, and, and actually there's this disputed piece of land or maybe even the coal mine it's itself is, is disputed. And you never ever get your, get your coal shipped to, 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 to the ships waiting there. So you make more money and, and you go bankrupt. So and, if, this issue, and this issue might be in the Indonesian press and a local Absolutely, local that's exactly yeah. the point. So, so basically you have to identify that um, in, in, in local language or at least national language. Uh, in this case, in uh, Indonesia, Bahasa, I think it's called. Um, so that's one problem, financial problem. Uh, and not, oh, I mean, I don't know, or maybe there's a bad business conduct of, 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 of the CEO and then basically the, 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 the share price of, of, of the company tanks. That's financial risk or investment risk. Um, the other aspect is reputation, which is related to, to, to financial risk, but it's not necessarily the same. And that's also something you have to be very careful. Let's say you run a so-called sustainability fund. Do you then want to be associated with the company that 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 bribes uh, basically in some exotic countries, some exotic countries from from, from our point of view, uh, as as an investor potentially? And the third aspect is is um, that there's a, a pure ethical compliance view. So that 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 you say, okay, uh, as before, you the Norwegian pension fund, you define basically according to what they call the uh, Council of Ethics, um, what 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 is acceptable, what's not acceptable, and then it's a compliance ethical question that you have to make this due diligence, and and you want to identify any companies or projects are in violation. So this is what we provide. Uh, metrics uh, for based on this on the on this um, uh, document document workflow that I described before fantastic and what does it look like how does a um, how does that how does a client get that from you it depends originally and this goes back to this uh, database and, and software as a service that we built back in in 2006 
you you could you could basically get a, a login and and then you you went into our um, uh, web-based tool and I could make searches for companies for projects. You could see okay what sort of issues uh, companies are exposed to, um, and then you also had some 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 basic metrics in there and you could sort things etc. So, so you could do do more qualitative research and 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 to facilitate that we also have one service especially also for um, uh, non-English documents that we basically make a summary of what's happening. So this is basically to be on top. It, it's still very popular also, for example, when, when you're an investor and you engage with companies. So basically be, before you um, uh, um, take any decisions to disinvest from the company or maybe the, before you vote at an annual general meeting, that uh, if, if, you, if you're big enough as an investor, you, you, you talk to company management, CFO or whatever. Um, and then you bring up issues and say, okay, we, we saw basically in the Red Risk, East Risk platform, there's an issue here related to um, uh, racial discrimination, uh, hot topic, obviously. Um, and then you basically try to, 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 to get some information that helps you to take the right decision or maybe actually to nudge the company to do the right thing in, in what you what's the right thing in your opinion. So that's one way, basically, how we make our data matrix available. But what we have seen uh, for the last couple of years is an increased interest in a pure quantitative way to use our data. So basically, we also provide metrics on a daily basis, which, which at the time uh, has been quite revolutionary that our service since 2006 is always daily. And this is because it's not based on disclosure and, the, and this uh, endless long uh, updating cycle that you require basically to, to have data based on company disclosure, annual reports and just like that, sustainability reports. So we have daily data um, that we can because, actually... Because because, for example, are you sweeping through the internet, you're sweeping all the local Indonesian press every day, right. so you're getting daily, daily information. Right, and then you have a predictive power in there, so you have basically to provide this information as, as soon as you can uh, to investors, for example. And then the investor, they build their own proprietary models. Of, of course, we don't know how that works, because if someone else knew, then you would basically also try to replicate it and, 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 and make money and, and, and what sure. generate what, what people call alpha which basically beating the the, the market and, and because it's ESG information it's ESG alpha um, so this is this is now an increasingly popular but also not easy application it's also this is involves in on the client side a lot of um, uh, uh, savvy ways to, to, to process our data to, to combine financial data with our data and constantly testing hypothesis and see is, is a market still inefficient as I call it Inefficient means that basically that the, that the share price, for example, is not quite right because it doesn't um, integrate certain factors which actually are material and should have an impact, for example, on company cash flows. And for that reason, actually a share um, price should actually be lower. So that's the sort of information that we can provide to, to, to sophisticated clients. And it's interesting because... ESG is one of the areas where the market probably is not fully efficient yet because um, uh, there's not enough data out there that is good enough to, 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 to have that to convey these signals. And also one of the other things, and this is now the four times we're lucky, um, is that we never change the methodology. So basically you can do a back testing. And, nice. and while in, in, in the traditional way to, uh, the ESG industry or ESG data industry have worked, there's basically a, a yearly update of methodology, which, which is, is good because it improves the way um, the, the clients can use the data. But because we are such a focused company on ESG issues and ESG risks, we have never updated the, the underlying methodology. The technology, yes, but not the methodology. And this means that you can redo backtesting till, till January 2007. So, so that's another uh, very important uh, application that we that that we currently supporting. That um, having had a, been speaking to a, 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 a quantitative fund last week, um, then backtesting was a massive thing. She was saying, so I can see how quant funds would would take a deep interest in your in your. Um, data as a result of that how has your how has your client base been changing and and perhaps most interestingly kind of you know what's who's the who's the who's the most recent to come across you and, and realize that they need you in their lives well the big thing that happened all of a sudden and i don't know why this happened but i think in 2019 all of a sudden this ESG investments 
they, they just exploded. I have no clue what happened. Um, maybe in the second half of 2019. And, and then despite of this uh, COVID-19 crisis, it just continues and goes through the roof. So, and, and reflecting that basically till end of 2018, I think our, our banking uh, client segment, and I think it's fair to say that, that, that pretty much all of the uh, major uh, Western banks, not the Chinese banks, for example, but the Western banks, including Japan and Australia, if you consider Japan and Australia belonging to, to the Western world. Uh, Japanese banks I often see as a different as a different bracket. They kind of do their own thing quite a lot. Quite often. Yes, but, but in, in, in my observation, they're, they're very compliant with international standards. Mm. So, so, so basically, when they, when they commit to something, for example, to this equator principles uh, or other um, standards set by the World Bank, etc., really, really take it seriously and comply with that. Uh, so this is a very good um, uh, market for us. And also in Japan, you, you, marketing is not good enough. It has to be very substantial what you do. So they, 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 they look at things very, very, very closely in my experience, in my humble experience. Um, so basically what, what they didn't like from the beginning is basically if something, if something doesn't add up. And, and this brings me to the second point, because of this, explosion of this East investing market, finally, there was a proper scrutiny by journalists, but also by academics looking at, at these traditional ESG scores that are called ESG ratings. And people started to ask, wait a second. So you have here the same company and one provider says, this is a top company. The other one says it's a flop company. So it's pretty random, this is ESG, ESG ratings when you compare them. And this really meant that, that, that um, the investors started to be interested to look at the underlying data points, the underlying metrics of ESG scores. Basically, mm. investors were not happy uh, ju just, just by using a score that says, this company is sustainable, this is unsustainable, and maybe it was even a forced um, uh, distribution in a sense that basically tried to be close to a so-called benchmark, to a so-called um, uh, um, uh, index uh, used in the financial world that he said, okay, uh, you have these 500 American companies companies and, and, and these 600 European companies. And then with the sustainability score, you try basically have the same distribution. So you reduce maybe the 500 US companies to 250 and the 600 European companies, 300 companies. So basically, which meant that one bank had to be sustainable, the other one couldn't be sustainable. Although in Switzerland, we have two pharmaceutical companies. So one is sustainable, the other isn't. So, so you see the, the, the it's, 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 it's um, a bit difficult to justify this sort of methodology because what does it mean when a company is sustainable? A company has maybe a great program, like a pharmaceutical company, to, to give access to medicine for the, for, the, for the poorer part of the population. But then they have a bribery case. Is it now a sustainable company or a sustainable company? We don't know. So basically, the investors... Um, um, uh, how do you say? Uh, they grew up to the challenge. They, uh, uh, they, they, they tackled the challenge by, 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 yeah. by looking well, at the underlying maybe data. They, maybe the challenge attacked them. <laughs> maybe, yes. <laughs> and, um, and it was not enough just, just to have such a, someone telling you whether the company is sustainable or not. And, 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 uh, and this one really meant for us that all of a sudden this, this investment segment um, got much more scrutiny and, and therefore we got much more interest from, from, from investors that actually really knew what they wanted to achieve. But and but the profile of the investors. I mean, you talked about banks, but I mean hedge funds, like uh, uh, like fund managers, like how who who's 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 been ringing you up recently? Well, overall, when you talk of sustainable investing, it's not different for us. It's it's mainly asset managers, and of course, it's asset managers can be part of a bank. Um, so it's asset managers. This is this is where basically there, there has been um, uh, the biggest progress. Contrary, for example, to, to private banking wealth management, where, where I see a future huge boom, which could even be uh, bigger. But traditionally, basically, I don't know, a fund manager uh, got the job or the mandate, uh, for example, when, or um, someone who wanted to win over a mandate from, from a pension fund, so either someone um, managing mandate on behalf of a pension fund or someone who was running a fund got, got, got basically... The, the the job to 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 consider ESG or, or sometimes you call it to integrate ESG, um, and then basically uh, this person could take some some decisions together with investment committee and together with client etc. But it was a pretty straightforward uh, 
process and, and the, the several tools in your toolbox you could do this engagement i mentioned before you can do some exclusion that you say you don't want to have a company that is associated with child labor or you could could be more on this opportunity side and say okay now let's see renewable energy is a chance for us and compare that with the valuations but of course valuations might be very high which makes makes it less attractive so so this was mainly driven by the by by, by asamaj because this was much easier to to to, to implement for them this ESG integration or ESG whatever than, for example, for wealth managers and private banking, because for private banking, um, basically you have to talk to your clients. The client advisor has to, has to talk to the to the client and say, "Oh, we we, we now build the following uh, ESG portfolio," and then the the client looks at it and says. Um, what you 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 wanna you wanna have such an oil company in 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 my portfolio and call that sustainable, and then you have a discussion about that. Then maybe the advisor says yes because the idea is that this company is reducing the uh, the, the footprint in terms of the carbon emissions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you don't have these discussions uh, first of all in in the institutional world and uh, for fund management and, and and when you're dealing with insurances and pension funds, um, there it's it's much more basically. I wouldn't call it a check the box exercise. Maybe it was a check the box exercise five years ago, but it was much more straightforward because much fewer people, much fewer opinion, opinions are involved. So another area which I've um, which I've been hearing a lot about in terms of an interest from an alternative data perspective is is China. I mean, do you have any? Do you get any kind of accurate information out of China, or do you face challenges like other other sectors do? But let me first say something else, but because for the first time we talk about the the term alternative data. So so, so let me also mm. add here that that uh, ESG data has become one part of alternative data, right? Because it's one way, basically, um, in addition to financial data, etc., to 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 base decision investment decisions on. So that's a very uh, interesting development, and, and what I told you before, especially about the, the quant investors, the hedge funds that you, you use our um, uh, data and metrics as ESG scores based on back testing, based on, um, on, on, on their own modeling, combining that with other data. That's exactly um, uh, a typical example of, of, of such alternative data use case for, for ESG scores and, and, and data. Now in China, um, I would say that um, this investing boom with respect to ESG is not yet as hot as, as, as it is in, in, in Europe, but also in the US. But there are very clear signs that it's taking off. So I would say what was maybe mid-2019 in, in, in Europe and the US is, 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 is pretty much happening now in China. Um, so there's an increasing number of, 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 of people that want to talk ESG with us um, uh, when we talk to, to Chinese clients. Um, and what is interesting is that this whole question of localization is, is much more important. I mean, the good things for, 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 for the Americans and to a certain extent for, for, for the British people is that um, you used to deal with, 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 with English services, with English data, etc. And, and that's obviously quite different when, 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 when you come to China. So, so it's not only the Chinese language that, that is expected to be uh, fully covered by any service you provide them in terms of ESG, but it's also the understanding. So, so what do they need? And what's the, what's the, what, are the, what are the risks in China? Because they're going to be different. Exactly. And, and the yeah. risks are, are pretty much defined also by, um, uh, by the government uh, agencies. It's, to a certain extent, it's, it's, it's top-down. And to a certain extent, the, the, the government um, or, or certain experts within, within government agencies actually realize they're quite exposed, for example, when it comes to the um, uh, Build and Road Initiative, to to I don't know um, to 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 buy in from 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 local communities that actually could endanger the commercial success of a project. So that they see there also from a reputational point of view there there are risks here. So basically, there's a decision they have to green the the the, the Build and Road Initiative. Um, and this, and of course, provides big opportunities to, for for ESG data providers like us to 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 see can we help them to 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 better manage uh, these projects. But it's it's quite it's quite different to to a situation that you had, um, let's say, 
in, in the beginning of sustainable investments in the, in, in the US or in, in Europe, then basically people start more from a from an ethical point of view that then could even got codified in international norms. For example, mm. the, 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 the question of human rights, I, I mean, um, I mentioned apartheid before and, and the originally faith-based investors that didn't want to invest in, in companies in South Africa back in the day that they considered to be complicit in, 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 in human rights violations. And this and basically got got codified in, in, in the in the UN rights, uh, UN United Nations human rights statements, etc. And, and then you had further codification uh, with this um, um, United Nations um, principles. Uh, wait a second, uh, guiding principles for business and human rights. So, so this is basically how, how, how a lot of this happened in, 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 in the Western world. In China, however, um, some of these concepts might be actually not be as valid or might not even be applicable. But you still have, but you still have the question of ESG. Yeah. Could you say, um, I kind of, it fits in my mind that in, it makes sense in a way that ESG is kind of you're, you're in fear of the public you're in fear of, in the west you're in fear of what the public's going to say because that could really tank your your company share price or whatever and you could get in serious trouble whereas in china is the you're more in fear of the government well i'm not a, a political scientist uh, okay. what comes to my mind spontaneously now is to say yes but i mean the government has to do what what, what the public um approves because otherwise the, the government is, is is in trouble so so i i must say um based on the uh quite a few discussions i've had with with, with chinese experts i must say that a lot of what, what happens in China with respect to ESG is, is, is fully supported by, by, by a big part of, 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 the, of, of the population in, in, in China. But maybe it's, it's quite a different focus. I mean, the, the number one uh, concern is, 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 is certainly job creation. It's basically that, that the broader part of the population can participate in this incredible success of the uh, Chinese economy over the last couple of decades. But then, of course, there's an increasing concern about destroying the natural basis of the economy. So what about polluting a river? So this is a bad thing. So if you want to be successful in China, you need a lot of precise local environmental risk data. And that's why, for example, in China, we partner with, with Chinese provider that pro give us documents that are relevant um, uh, for the Chinese market, for example, from governmental agencies. And governmental agencies not only at the national level or at the uh, provincial state level, even at the local level, when basically a local community said, the corresponding um, uh, authorities said, okay, there, there are 13 companies that polluted this local river, and this is bad. And this, this can lead to arrests. This can lead to, to companies going out of business, business. This can even lead to situations that individual members that, that have violated certain laws actually um, um, are put on the death row. So, 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 so this is highly relevant stuff, and also highly local. So environmental impact, adverse environmental impact is, is, is one element. And the other element, hugely important, is, is basically um, violations of, 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 of legislation and, and also um, uh, anti-corruption. So I would say um, China is, is actually quite big on ESG, um, but maybe to a certain extent they don't call it ESG because it's more top-down, basically, um, uh, prescribed by, by the government that actually thinks ahead and, and thinks what has to be done. Fascinating. I think that's really interesting. Um, Philip, we have, um, we've spoken for a long time because it's been very interesting. I feel like we could do another hour quite easily, but, um, but we shouldn't and we mustn't and we can't. Um, so a little bit of housekeeping um, and then uh, just, to, just before we go um, is that I've made two mistakes and one omission. Um, I made a mistake by saying that The Constant Gardener was a um, Graham Greene book, but it was John le Carre. I made a mistake saying it was Jeffrey Hines uh, rather than Jeffrey Hinton was the man. Who, uh, <laughs> yeah, you're the expert AI, on that. <laughs> revolutionized AI, which is 2006 instead of 2005. And finally, I omitted um, letting you say the name of your fiction book so that potential fans can still get it on, on Amazon on, um, on ebooks. So what was it called? Actually, in German, it's called Kolumbianische Scheidung, which means Colombian divorce. And actually, it tells you 
the the mystery behind um, two pharmaceutical companies that finally decided not to marry, not to to merge, but but but, but actually uh, refrained from that step uh, because of reasons related to business conduct. Fantastic. So for any German speaking listeners, if that whets your appetite, then look up Philip AB, uh, Colombian divorce. And uh, I'm sure I'm sure you'll get a hold of that. So you're going to get some big, big sales in soon, I'm sure. Um, I appreciate that. Thanks, you, Mark. Philip, finally, thank you so much. It's been really interesting. I'm sorry we couldn't go on longer. Um, and yeah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Mark. Take care.